Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York. And Boca Raton, Florida. It's the Freight 360 Podcast. From freight broker sales tips to sports talk, this podcast is all about helping you grow as a freight broker. We're your hosts, Nate Cross. And Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. All right, welcome back for episode 175 of the Freight 360 Podcast. That kind of seems like it's a milestone, right? 175? It's a lot. I'm like, it's a lot of hours. I was in my head as soon as you said that. I'm like, I wonder how many full days that is. I should be able to do that math. It's a lot head, of but. days of me and you talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got a good episode today. We're gonna we're gonna tell some success stories from uh, right from you, Ben, about landing some of your first big customers and what that process looks like. Uh, but first. If you are brand new, welcome to Freight 360. We're so glad that you found us. If you've been with us for a while, welcome back. Keep sharing us with all your friends and leaving those good reviews and make sure to interact with us, whether it's sending in questions through the website or commenting on our YouTube videos and all that good stuff. So um, what's happening with you, Ben? Anything new and exciting? Not particularly. Weather was pretty cold over the weekend. Got some family photos at the beach this afternoon that I'm uh, both excited for and dreading a little bit because they can always be stressful when you're trying to get a toddler, two tiny dogs, and the rest of the family. Oh, I didn't even think about the the dog part of it. Yeah. (laughs) So kids will be interesting. It is, man. Yeah. It's funny. You see, you see people who have like the, the family photos after they have a new kid and it's if if you've never had a if you've never had kids it'll blow your mind with the first time you try to get a newborn to look at a camera let alone a one-year-old two-year-old three-year-old yeah it is uh yeah those photographers yeah. have some skill well that was the whole conversation Shaking around toys <laughs> i've i used to take all the pictures pretty much for us and my wife was like well we'll just do that this year and i'm like honey i'm like Ava's gotten bigger. It's just too hard to chase her. And I'm like, for me to be in it and behind the camera with the two dogs, I'm like, it'll be like a, well, I heard the analogy there. It'll be like a goat rodeo. I heard some CEO use that in a podcast. I was like, that is a great analogy. Oh, man. All right. Well, let's kick it off with a quick little sports recap here. The We're moving on to the divisional round of the playoffs for football. I was incorrect in my estimation of the Bills game last weekend. Um yeah, not a, a closer than oh, too close for comfort there. Yeah, it was. Um, so I was at the game, and as much as I like being at the game, it is really hard to follow the big picture of a drive. Or a, like, I like hearing what the announcers have to say. Basically, is what it comes down to, and you you don't get that when you're at the stadium. It's fun and it's energetic. Um, but when I rewatched the game, like the highlights that night, it, I was like, oh my god, like. The Bills did not look very good. <laughs> Josh Allen had, I think, two interceptions and then a fumble that turned into a, a TD for Miami. But anyway, they pulled off the win. Um, they're going to be playing Cincinnati at home this coming Sunday. So, uh, But the highlights, Tom Brady, for the Monday night game this week, uh, got blown out. It was it was an embarrassment to see how Dallas – Took that, and we were we were talking with Ryan Mann last week, and I was like, "Yeah, I think Dallas is going to handle that." He's like, "I don't know," and it was just crazy to see how bad the Bucks looked. Uh, also, the Chargers were up twenty-seven to nothing, and ended up losing thirty-one to what was the final on that one? Thirty, yeah, look, thirty-one to thirty. 
So Trevor Lawrence came back from a 27 point deficit to win um, on, I think it was Saturday. And I saw some guy, I saw it on Twitter. Some guy bet on the chargers when they were up 27, nothing. He bet a million dollars and he bet it till it was only going to pay him like $11,000 or something like that, which is a lot of money, but to, to post up a million dollars and then he lost, he lost it. Oh man. Oh, that's gotta be a rough, a rough next morning. Uh, but yeah, you got the, you know, moving on to the, the divisional round bills host in Cincinnati. You've got, um, the chiefs host and the Jaguars, uh, giants, Eagles, and then Cowboys and 49ers. So we're, we're getting there. And it, the way it's, it's panning out here, the, uh, AFC championship game would be played in Atlanta on a neutral field. If, if it's Buffalo and, um, the chiefs. So, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen this weekend though with the Bills. I'll give my predictions at the end. They're they're currently like a five point favorite, but they didn't cover their spread last week, this past weekend. But uh, I got to meet one of the Pittsburgh Steelers actually at the game. Um, who did I meet? Uh, Terrell Edmonds. Oh yeah, Terrell Edmonds. I was like, I, well, there's three. There's three Edmonds brothers, and I was like, hmm. Tremaine's on the Bills, and I'm like, this guy that's standing in front of me to get a beer right now looks strangely familiar and the guy next to him's wearing a game worn Terrell Edmonds jersey and I was like is that thing game worn he's like yeah I was like you guys related he's like yep and I was like I had to look on my phone I was like yep that's Terrell Edmonds right there so I got <laughs> got to meet him and he signed my jersey and all that stuff so I now have a Matt Milano Bills jersey signed by Terrell Edmonds which may be strange but uh it is what it is so good stuff good stuff um that's all I got for sports I did want I had a I read the article on freight waves I wanted to hit on too. So the the title, we'll put a link in the show notes, is uh, total freight costs fall year over year in December for the first time in 28 months. So that's huge, right? Like we saw this crazy boom in the cost of transportation during the pandemic and it broke it down year, year over year. So uh, it's down just under 4% since last December, but it's still almost 4% higher than it was two years ago. So that goes to show you in the big scheme of things, prices are still on the rise in our industry. So there's no panic. Like you get drivers, the bottom's going to fall out and all this stuff. What, what do you, what do you take away from that here in that stat? And I don't know, because you know, people always ask, we had a guy this morning, like how's business. And it's like, at the end of the day, it's, it's still good, even though it's different than what it was six months ago. Very little, to be honest. And why that is, it's not only personal experience, but people way smarter than me that write about this stuff a lot. In fact, I was reading some of uh, Warren Buffett's shareholder letters over the weekend. And as it was, they were related to really just how do you build a recession-proof business? But he uses the same advice in both. And um, Charlie Munger is, you know, business, longtime business partner, same thing. It's manage your costs. In fact, he goes on to say that if you cannot save money, it is absolutely a fool's errand to even start a business. And what he means by yeah. that is if you can't manage your costs, it doesn't matter what's going on in the economy. And he goes on to say that, like, if you think your threats to your business are in the news, he was like, he was like, you need to go walk into your bathroom and look in the mirror because that's where your threat is. He's like, it's either going to be you or it's going to be your costs. And, you know, there's another cliche. It's just, 
the lower your costs are, the easier it is to make more money than what they are, right? So the lower you keep that number, the easier it is to get above it. And why I say that is I see this in trucking a lot and a lot on the carrier side, but especially entrants that enter into the market when the market's booming, right? During the pandemic, we're seeing all time rate per mile highs, right? Seeing six, $7 on a mile per, for some lanes, just astronomic costs. Well, when you come into the market, there's the expectation that that will continue. And typically when people are making money that fast and times are that good, they aren't spending enough time managing their expenses. And we say this over and over again, it's a cycle. It's a big circle. So if you're at the top, it will be coming this way. If you're at the bottom, it will be going this way. So if you can't manage your costs when you are making a lot of money, when everybody's got to tighten their belts and revenue retracts, which it always does because the whole economy cycles in a circle, by the way, that most of those entrants complain that there's not enough money out there. The reality is that they're only looking at one side of the income statement. They're just looking at the revenue. They're not looking at their cost per mile or their cost per day. And they're not really working to get those numbers down lower every month. Yeah. And what I'll, I mean, what I'll say on it is look at our economy over the last 100 years, right? It is on an overall upward trajectory. It always has been, but you will have these cycles sometimes. And then you have, sometimes you have your recession in there. Um, We, I don't, I still don't know if they've declared an actual recession or, or not, but clearly we've seen a, a downturn in the economic activity, but it will come back and it will be higher than it was before. So yep. uh, that's why I take these numbers lightly as well. Um, and it is like, it was eye open to see like, it's still higher than two years ago. Well, so. And here's the other point too. And we talked about this on our call this morning, which is the market is just so large that Yes, it affects everybody in it, but to a degree, like, I don't really care where the whole market's going because there are always shippers that have problems that are larger than most businesses. And if you're talking to enough of them, there's always opportunity. It doesn't matter whether the market's going up or down. There's just so many shippers out there. There's so many things that go wrong in our industry when things are done correctly that it just creates lots of opportunities. So whether the market is going up or down, I'm just happy that it's transitioning because if it's moving, that means it's creating opportunities. Yep. If it stayed stagnant, I'd be a little bit worried. Yes. So, so there's your um, there's your economics lesson for today. Um, speaking of uh, saving costs and keeping your costs low, let's give a shout out to our friends over at DAT. Taking the guesswork out of freight with DAT. The DAT Load Board Network is the largest on-demand freight marketplace in North America, connecting freight brokers with available capacity on any lane. Grow your business with tools that allow you to find new business partners, plus you can quickly qualify and onboard new carriers. And with the industry's leading freight rate data, you can make clear and confident pricing decisions. Check out the show notes for 30 days free of Power Express or Trucker's Edge. Absolutely. All right, so we're going to have fun with this episode today. Um, and I'll, I'm going to be picking your brain. And I want to, We're going to have the, the Ben Kowalski story on um, some of the first large shippers that you closed. And we're going back, you know, this wasn't like it was last week, right? We're going years yes. back here. So, you know, the those specific companies and how they operate now may be different now, but the same kind of concept and sales cycle will apply, whether it was, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, or today. So yep. um, talk me through, obviously, for anyone that doesn't know, when you started in um, in brokerage, you didn't have any transportation background, correct? 
None whatsoever. Um, so finance, business background, accounting, I understood how companies operated, but I had no idea how logistics, transportation, or the market functioned whatsoever. So what did the um, what did the onboarding training, what did that look like for you that first, let's say, I don't know, three or six yeah. months? Like, so getting, getting yep. into the industry, kind of understanding what it is that we do, what did that look like? First three to four months where I worked, you go through formal training and I worked at uh, one of the larger brokerages, big box three PMs. So first I'd say, I think it was like three or four months. I go through their training, which was a few weeks, similar to kind of the way we have our training structured in our course. You go through that online and then you work underneath somebody. So you're attached to a broker and primarily your job is covering loads and learning how that customer functions, whoever that broker's customer base are. So I happen to be, you know, partnered with a guy or underneath a guy that did a lot of lumber. Um, he did a lot of plastics and he did some food. So it was just making phone calls, covering loads and learning how the actual market functions. It was the first, I'd say, four or five months. Okay. Now, that is definitely one of the biggest challenges that a lot of folks had getting into brokerage during the pandemic with people working remotely is they didn't have the ability to you know, to sit with somebody or be surrounded by people that are doing their job, which I think made it really yeah. difficult. Um, but, you know, I think people have found a way to overcome that with, you know, we always say, you, you've even used the example of hop on a Zoom with somebody and just like experience how they work for a couple of hours and just, you yeah. know, that, that can kind of mimic that uh, experience there. But uh, I'll, give, okay. you, yeah, I'll give you one of the biggest takeaways I learned there just is the fact that like doing that job taught me how important it was to have the right number to cover the right load at the right time. And I think where everybody out there doing this on their own is going to learn this is you're going to learn this when you accept your first load, have a commitment for it with a number that you've committed to that shipper and you try to cover it and you're wrong. Yep. When that happens, you are going to learn way more from that scenario than you are when you actually get the load covered and get to go get the next one. Because you learn from your mistakes, not your wins. And you realize how important it is that if somebody needs this moved in the next three hours, it is much different than if they need it moved over the next three days. Yeah. And what you quote and what it takes to cover it and how many phone calls are going to be a function of those things. So now let's let's go through what are the, the you know, you got a, had a couple of big shippers that you closed what did the timeline look like on that? How did you find these folks? Talk me through the the kind of the prospecting phase of it and how you got into first contact. We'll do one smaller shipper and one larger shipper. Um, okay. And we'll go through both examples. But the first thing I use, and I actually heard this last week said way better than I've ever said it. And the, um, whatever, this piece of wisdom was, and it was a guy from Paul Graham, guy, very successful um, tech investor. And he says, their business model in the 90s was run upstairs. And what he means by that, and he goes on to say, is he's like, look, if a bully's chasing you and you get to a stairwell, do you run up or down? He's like, well, if you run down, the bully who's bigger than you can probably chase you forever. But if you run up the stairs, eventually you'll probably gain ground and be able to get away. And why he says that matters and why I like this for our industry is that so many of our audience and a lot of the brokers out there aren't the big players. There's only a handful of them. So guess what? Yes, they're bigger. They might have more name recognition, but you have a huge advantage in the fact that you are nimble, you can move quicker, and you can move in directions faster than any of these big companies can go. And why that matters was that's what I used to look for my first two customers. My biggest barrier to getting a customer at a big company was I had to first compete with the four or 5,000 other brokers. 
So you need a prospect in your name before you can even call them, let alone do business with them. So what my approach was, I'm going to go in the opposite direction of everybody else. Everybody in that company went after produce because it was super high margin and that's where that company built their name. I went in a direction where I'm going to find the most complicated thing I can find in that industry, not because I think I'm smarter, but it was mostly because there are less people willing to put that time in outside of their day to figure it out. So now I've got less competition inside the company. Yeah, exactly. And outside in the market, right? So both two articles, the bigger company was most of the major shipping lines were being reorganized in like 2016. That's when this was. So I looked at like Maersk, the big shipping lines, like literally the largest shippers in the world. And they were reorganizing at the time, meaning they were buying each other up. They were selling assets. They were acquiring assets. And I'm like, well, if they're in a period of flux, there's a very good chance I can get somebody to maybe talk to me because everything's changing, right? Yeah. The other one was steel. And at that time, there were huge tariffs on steel coming into the country. So it disrupted the whole, the whole steel market around the world. That I also created I want to pause right there and point something out, right? You weren't just like, oh, here's a list of customers. I'm just going to start making my dials. You found legitimate reasons to contact a company and not just be added to their bullpen or their roster of transportation providers. But hey, I understand and I see that things are changing. There's some sort of disruptions or you know changes within your organization. I'm going to try to strike while the iron's hot during that. So I want to point yep. that out because... You know, and this could apply on a smaller scale too. So if you prospect, um, well, I'll use produce as an example. If you prospect a produce company during their shipping season versus before their shipping season, it's going to be very, very different kinds of conversations, right? Yes. If they're just getting ready to start, you know, they're harvesting in their shipping season, things are changing. That's a great opportunity. And you'll probably want to start those conversations a couple months before that, but it's a lot different than when they've already got their regular rotation of folks that are getting their email blasts every single day or multiple times a day in the middle of that season. And here's why it's very simple, right? The very simple difference is the only reason you're really talking to them before that happens is so they're familiar enough and you've got enough rapport where you can actually have a conversation when the opportunity arises, right? Like if somebody's shipping season peaks three months into the year and you start talking to them now, don't expect to them to onboard you or there for to be a big need right now or an urgent need. But they usually have a little more time. You can build some rapport so that, you know, two months from now, you can have a more in-depth conversation about where that need and opportunity actually is. Yeah. Okay. So you have a good reason to reach out to these companies. Yep. What does that first contact look like? Were you email? Were you calling? What'd you do? So it was a mix of both. I'll pick the first big company, right? And the first big customer was Maersk, right? So literally the largest shipper in the world. And my buddies in my office used to laugh because we would write on the board every week, we'd have a meeting and you had to write your top 10 hottest prospects, right? And I just used to write that on the top of the board every time and everybody would kind of laugh. They're like, oh, so your hot prospect is the biggest company in the world that's never worked with a non-asset broker ever. And like, that's who you're going to close. And I'm like, in my head, there were two things. One was curiosity because I genuinely didn't know a lot of things, which made me feel like I could have really good conversations with them because I had a lot of shit to ask. There's a lot of things I don't know at this stage. So I have a lot of things to talk about. But two, I also was reading in the news how much they were changing. And I'm like, I just felt that I could make a case and I had enough conviction in why I was doing it that I felt like I could sell that, right? And that's something we don't talk about a lot. But if you don't have conviction in what you're selling, meaning you don't believe in it, you can be sure as shit the person you're selling it to doesn't believe you either. (laughs) 
Yeah, they'll they'll uh, you know we kind of say you can you can smell and you can feel somebody's lack of confidence. The same thing goes with the lack of conviction. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where that's where the lead came from. So first couple phone calls was I'm I look for the person who's going to onboard me. So I'm looking for titles in LinkedIn and I'm looking for like procurement manager, director of transportation, inland transportation, anything that looks like the highest guy in that department. And then I look for the lowest guy in the department. Who are the people tendering the loads? Different pain points. The people on the front lines sending us our loads, they're the ones that are dealing with trucks not showing up. They're the ones getting yelled at by the facilities. They're the ones that are having things blow up when the things don't go correctly. The guy who approves you is very far off in this scenario, right? So again, I'm looking for these people. What happened next was, guess what? Nobody answered the phone. And even furthermore, you couldn't get anybody's direct line because they all got funneled in through like a call system because the company's so massive. So spent the first two weeks, nobody picked up the phone. I couldn't get through to anybody and I couldn't get anywhere. So tried a different approach. And we talk about this a lot was, I was like, who is answering the phone? I'm like, well, some of these executive secretaries are answering the phone. So rather than me try to blow past the secretary to get to the person who I didn't think would approve me anyway, I started to build rapport with that secretary, asking her questions about what's going on, feeding in and honestly flattering that person. Hey, you know, you probably know more about what's going on in this organization than probably some of the executives at times. Because I knew when I, when I worked at the bank, most of the gatekeepers knew the boss's schedules better than they did. They were the ones <laughs> telling them where they needed to go, when they needed to go there, what needed done. They were the ones that basically managed all of it. The people above them or that they worked for, yeah, they signed everything. But at the end of the day, they knew a lot, right? So I used that person to build a lot of rapport with and to just understand the landscape of how I would get approved. Who's the guy that signs off on this? How many people? How often does this happen? Who are the other people I need to talk to? Well, two, three phone calls with this woman. And she did. She pointed me out to the three people I needed to speak to. They got the top, the guy next to him, and the guy right below them, right? So now I've got the three people and she was kind enough to like put me through to their voicemail, which I know frustrates some people. But if you've got the gatekeeper allowing you to leave a voicemail and then telling you, you've got to ask this question, when is the best time to follow up, right? I'm now playing into this guy's schedule with a person who knows it the best. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, So on that gatekeeper note, did you feel like it was difficult to start to get some rapport with the gatekeeper? Because I feel like once you've got the gatekeeper on your side, they've got some leverage that they can, you know, they can pull some strings for you, right? They could say, I like this guy. I'm going to help him out, but I don't get a good vibe from this other one. Yep. And here's the thing. Most of them experience what? They experience people being very rude, getting frustrated when they can't get past them. And that comes across. It comes across in your tone, what you're saying, how you're saying it, and they can feel that, right? And there's a lot of frustration on our part as salespeople when we run into them and they notice that, right? So really, it's just as simple as it doesn't cost any more to be nice, right? I called that person as if I was trying to speak to her, made it seem like the person I'm speaking to was the only person I was speaking to and asked them questions about their lives, their position, and really just wanted to learn more about them and their role in that organization, right? Because nobody makes them feel important, right? And when you do, that establishes a lot of trust and a lot of rapport and allows them to now be open and honest with you. And that's really all I did. So you get on you get on this guy's schedule, you set up a call. What how does the you know, you're now you're talking instead of instead of trying to call whoever's tendering freight because they're not answering the phone, you get 
you get on with one of the higher ups. Are they open to it? What, I mean, was it someone that was brand new because they were transitioning? What, what happened there? So first call was with a guy that was pretty high up. He wasn't over the whole country, but he was over the, the Northeast. His name was Paul. And she connects me to Paul and she says, hey, this is the guy you need to speak to. And again, I asked her, rather than going cold into that call, I said, hey, would you mind putting in a good word for me? Now, I'd spoken to her like one or two or three times at this point. It wasn't just one phone call. You know, spoke, followed back up. Again, called her like I was talking to her, the gatekeeper. And I said, hey, do you think maybe you could put in just like a word or two with him, you know, when you've got some downtime or maybe he's at your desk in between meetings to let him know that I called and that, you know, I was trying to speak with him about this. She was like, at this point, she's like, oh, absolutely. I'll put in a good word for you. He's a really nice guy. And then I asked her, again, something most people don't ask, which is, what are some of Paul's hobbies? What does he do outside of work, right? Are there any sports teams that he's a fan of, right? So long before I'm on the phone with him, I've got some of his interests. I know when's a good time to reach him. And I've got somebody laying a little bit of the groundwork prior to that phone call, right? So we'll say, and I can't remember, I think it was maybe fishing was with this guy. Um, he had a kid and like some normal things, right? So I made sure I had a couple stories prepared for that before I called him. And again, the same stuff we talk about made it personal, talked more about those things before I even got into business. Tried to establish some rapport, told him why he was calling, but he already kind of knew from the gatekeeper, got that back and forth moving and then moved forward, right? So after the chit chat, whether it's sports, hobbies or whatever it was, then I dug into what my value proposition was. My value proposition for that specific shipper at that specific time for me, which would be different now, was I work for one of the largest brokerages in the company, in the country. They own, they work for the largest shipper in the world, right? So my value prop was, look, like we've never done any business together. And it was almost like I, I approached it like curiosity, like curiously and almost like stupidly, like very humble, like, hey, why aren't, why aren't we doing business together? I mean, we've got the largest trucking capacity in the country or one of them, and we've never done any business together. You know, what's been the hurdle? Have you guys ever looked at this? Do you guys have any capacity issues? That's where it started, right? And that's what I think is cool is that you didn't just go in there and try, like you get the old, I've got trucks, right? I got trucks in here. Yes. You kind of, you went in there curious and very open to have a conversation and not just trying to force feed something down his throat. So, yep. Well, from there, and that's right. Like the answer was, hey, this does sound positive. Like this sounds like a pretty good opportunity. And, you know, he was very upfront and said, look, you know, this would be a long process. We've never done this. Probably the better part of six months, maybe even longer. It's got to go through legal, but I will connect you with some of the other people in procurement so we can talk about these things, right? So again, and I also had something kind of in my back pocket. At that time, I was also moving military freight for the brokerage. I had half the account. The other person had half the account. And I use that because I'm going to parlay like the fact that the military is about as big as you get in the United States next to this company. So I had basically said, look, we've got a lot of experience dealing with this size organization. I feel like we could bring a lot into yours. And what they said was, you know, that's great. I think where we would start you is probably on our military accounts. You're familiar with how they operate, some of the ins and outs, their procedures. I think that would be great. But again, first one or two conversations, we're nowhere near approval, but this is what we're learning and understanding at this point, right? So very specific, like you said, on value proposition, how, what we bring to the table and why we think 
again, this might make sense for us to work together. So take me through to the the closing part of it and starting to do business. Because then, then I want to switch to the smaller customer and talk about yep. how what's kind of similar and what's different about it. But you, you got to go through a long process, obviously. And then what happens? So long process was got one guy on board. Then I needed to get the other people. I've got two other people I know are vital for me to get approved, right, as a company. So then I had him connect me to the other two people to start building rapport and to start asking more questions. What do they need from us? What are the hurdles? Well, and we don't this episode isn't on the minutia of the contracts with this, but like there were a lot of hurdles because their contract agreements stated specifically that they cannot work with anybody that doesn't own assets. And furthermore, every load gets tendered somewhat through kind of the UIIA, which also doesn't work with anybody that has no assets. So like you needed to be a member of the UIA to even be approved and we could never be one because we didn't own assets. So long story short, Six months of us working through the protocols and coming up with procedures that would make them happy, meeting everything that they do on their own as a company, we said we could do the same things in a different way, but to achieve the same outcome. Well, it did take the better part of a year because the contracts would go into legal, they would redline them, they would come back to our legal, back and forth. And again, it would take six weeks for them to review their side, sometimes two months, and then another six weeks to review ours. So you've got two months, then a month on us, two months on them, one or two months on us, and it's that for the better part of a year, right? But as that's going along, I'm being introduced to some of the people that tender loads to start understanding where they might need capacity, and we can start working on building the carrier base or finding the right carriers for their loads throughout this process. Then, to be honest, what what came what came to a head was about a year later, and this is like right around November of that next year, we were just about to be approved. And then it got delayed again. And this is the hard part. When you're trying to onboard a customer with somebody that big, once they're going through and you know crossing the T's and dotting the I's, it's very hard to now create urgency around the legal side because their job is to prevent risk, not to solve operational problems. So they move much slower than what we want them to do. So now I needed a reason to just you know put my foot on the gas and get this moved. And to be honest, again, luck kind of played a factor in this. Meaning we probably would have gotten approved right around December, January, but got very lucky because the ELDs went into effect in December of that year. And as soon as they did, it shrunk the capacity in the market drastically. And we knew this was coming. In fact, that's what we were playing into in the fall timing this. And we knew as soon as that happened, they were going to lose capacity because you got guys got paper logs that lost the ability to drive as much as they did once they went to ELDs. And that's what happened. Literally, as soon as that happened, right? what is it? Preparation meets opportunity, right? We put all the preparation in, but at the end of the day, the market is the one that created the opportunity that greenlit us. And then it just blew up because the need was so large. Again, it's the same thing we talk about in produce. If you're working with them two or three months or four months before they have this problem, meaning their shipping season starts, that's when the opportunities are going to come. For us, you know, it was a bigger picture thing. and It was a much longer time frame, but it's the same premise. You build so, import, you do the work, and then the opportunity can pay off. So start to finish, you were over 12 months with those 14. guys? Yeah, it was 14, 14. Yep. There you go. All right, let's talk about the the smaller customer, the steels, steel guys. So similar at the beginning, meaning saw that there was a lot of flux in the steel market, meaning things were changing. Where companies were sourcing their steel if they always kept buying, you know, imports from another country and now you've got a huge tariff, you've got to buy somewhere else. 
not all of it maybe, but some of it, because you're never going to be able to have a business that can see their increase in cost and be able to manage it 25%. Was that related to the the presidency yes. at the time? Because I think Trump, yes. Trump was in yes. office and he put a lot of pressure on imports, right? Yes. Yep. So, I mean, Tax, that alone all right the imports, there, 25%. Yeah. Yeah, that alone right there, it, you know, things on that scale affect a ton of different industries. So that's good on you for picking up on on that because a lot of young brokers are just, again, they're not thinking big picture and trying to forecast. They're just like, all right, I need a list of shippers so I can start dialing. So that's good. All right. So you saw that that change coming or that obviously that the pressure yeah. in the industry. It's coming through. It's in the news. And I'm like, well, at least gives me something to talk about, which again, I'm new at this. This is like my first customer. I don't know who the hell to call or what to call or why to call. And I always had paralysis by analysis. So my boss was like, look, pick two directions and just go. And they made me trust them. And I was like, I'll do that. This was one of the categories. So I picked, you know, probably two or 300 leads in the steel section, in the sector, right? And then built out my prospecting list and just started to call them, right? In fact, I almost kind of remember the amount of calls. I think it was right around a little over 2,200 calls before I called this customer. I had started in like, it was like beginning of November, maybe late October. And I called this guy, I, I remember, because it was like the third week of December. And when I called the guy, his name was Rick. Um, and the guy answers the phone and you could just hear the panic in his voice. And you could hear that he's just overwhelmed and he just, you could just tell he's frantic, right? And I'm like, I could hear that I'm like, and I and just, it was very short, like maybe 30, 45 seconds. I called him and my spiel was just very simple at the time. It was maybe like, hey, you know, I worked for so-and-so, I was reaching out because I see what's happening in the steel industry. And I know there's lots changing. Want to see if maybe, you know, we might be a good fit to work together. And I remember him saying just something like, look, I just don't have the time right now. It's crazy over here, but I'll tell you what, I just started in this job a few months ago. I definitely could use some help, but call me in a few weeks. And that was it. And I just remember getting off the phone and I'm like, I don't really know what opportunity sounds like because I've never closed a customer, but I'm pretty sure it sounds like this. I'm like, this guy has more business than he can get to. And he clearly can't manage all of it. And I'm like, that's what we do as brokerage. Like we pick up the overflow. We pick up the last minute stuff. That's where we add value. And I'm like, this guy clearly has some need. And even if I don't close him, he's going to be working with some brokerage because yep. somebody needs to help this person, right? So again, this is like second week of January. It's probably like right around now, the same time of year. Call Rick back and I go, hey, Rick, you know, but again, instead of going right into it, start with the rapport. How was your holiday? How did things go? Caught him at a good time. Got a chance to back and forth a little bit about his kids, the holidays. He's a little calmer now. I've got some rapport. Now I, I can go right into like, well, hey, you know, and I just called it what it was. Look, it sounded like you're pretty frantic. You clearly have a lot going on. Is there somewhere where I might be able to help you with anything that you're working on? Is there anything that you need, even maybe just now that I might be able to go and help you with? At this point, never had a customer. And I'm like, I don't give a shit what this guy tells me he needs help with. I will find a way to help with it. I don't care <laughs> if it's researching something. Like I will figure out a way to get this guy what he needs, right? And he did. He asked. He said, hey, look, we have a hard time getting trucks with headache racks to ship out of, I think it was like Texarkan at the time. He's like, this shipper is adamant. They will not load anybody with any pipe without a headache rack and half the trucks we secure don't have them. So we have huge issues with this shipper. I'm like, okay. At this time, I have no idea what a headache rack is. I've never shipped pipe. I don't really know what he's talking about. 
But I'm like, there's a need there. So let's go find some creative way to solve it. And that's all I said to him was, hey, give me some time. Let me go dig into this, get my arms around it, and let me get back to you. Didn't need to know the answer, just needed to assure him I would come back to him with that, right? That's kind of the first call, really, right there. But from there, that's just what I did. Went and asked anybody I could find, what is a headache rack? Googled them. Why do you need them? What happens if you don't have them? Why do shippers need them? And why is this a problem in the first place, right? Start there. Dug into it and found that like a headache rack is basically like the grill of a truck, you know, like you see on the front of a police car, but it goes on the rear window of a tractor trailer so that if they stop for an accident or, you know, suddenly the pipe doesn't come flying off the truck and go and right through the back of the cab. Yeah, you can, uh, if you guys ever get bored looking for something to do, Google some pictures of a pipe or any any kind of long object that has been pushed through the back of the cab and out the front of the cab. Uh, there's some horror yep. stories out there that involve like fatalities and whatnot, but yeah, that, that kind of, that kind of stuff is, um, you know, it's a big deal. It's, it's, it's a, it's yes. a different kind of, I guess you'd call it like, you know, your um, people are used to, you know, your straps and your tarps and our kind of stuff to secure freight down. But when you've got something like that, that, that pipe essentially becomes a weapon if it's not secured properly. So Yep. Good stuff. And the second issue was pipe stakes. Pipe stakes are basically just literally pieces of pipe. They're like thinner and they go into the the slots around the flatbed. So when they lay the pipe on it, it doesn't roll off each side. Right. So the two issues were pipe stakes and headache racks. Right. So, well, that's what we got to work on. Started looking where we could source capacity, what carriers we could call. And that's really the same thing we talk about is literally what we did was, or I did, Going through Google, going through our carrier profiles. Which carriers do we have there? Which carriers deliver there? Which ones have delivered pipe? And then just literally making hundreds of phone calls until you had a handful of carriers that had the requirements that could do it. So you had somewhere to start. Now, once we started to run the freight and he gave us a load or two to quote, what we ran into was a lot of the trucks that we needed last minute because of a fallout or a guy that was booked to pick up in the morning that got held up the night before. He was right. Like they didn't have pipe stakes. Even if they had headache racks, a lot of them didn't have them. So we, I wanted to come up with a way that was well, a creative way to solve it or just a way to solve it to begin with. So I'm sitting there thinking and I started talking to some carriers and I go, what really is a pipe stake? Where does it go? How tall does it need to be? Are there requirements for it? Are there standards for them? Are they purchased from a certain company? Like what are these things? And you found out they're really just- it, There isn't. Yeah. It's just it's, it's just a, a metal, metal. bowl. It's it's in a slot. And I'm like, well, shit. I'm like, that doesn't seem like that impossible. And I'm like, well, where would I need to get that if I needed one like in an afternoon? Like if I needed to get this in the next two hours, where would I go? And I'm like, I don't know, a fabrication saw. Uh, Find some place that cuts rebar or will weld these things, right? And I had a carrier that was delivering there. And I go, hey, have you seen any? I found a couple of fabrication shops. And this guy's like, yeah, I, I really need them if you can find them for me called a dozen fabrication shops, found one that would literally make these for the guy, for, for my carriers. And I go, hey, look, I got about this many trucks coming out every week. This many don't have them. Can I pay you to make these, leave them at your shop and give them to drivers if they need them? And this guy's at the shop. He's like, yeah, I got some spare time. I'm like, it'll work for everybody. You can make some extra money. I'll give you some more business. The trucks get what they want. Our customers get what they want. And that was as simple as that. They made, they literally made pipe stakes at this fabrication shop out of rebar down really near the shipper. And anytime somebody showed up or got rejected for not having them, 
We sent them there, calm checked the driver, and then factored that into our margins, what we had to pay. There you go. So I would say your your big similarities there as an outsider is you found a a legitimate reason that there was opportunity, right? In the first case, you had um, big changes happening inside of the organization as a company as a whole. And the second one, there's industry regulation, right? I shouldn't, well, you can call it government regulation, government um, tariffs being added on. So stuff was changing in that market. Differences, I mean, you had to find a creative solution either way. It sounds like it was a little bit of quicker of a turnaround with the, with the steel company, but um, overall, I mean, you, you, you went the, the extra mile, right? You, you were the, the value add, bringing true opportunity or true options and solutions to a customer and not just, Hey, I've got trucks in the area. So um, there is no, in my opinion, there is no perfect recipe for us, you know, for every single customer. I think every single customer has their own little nuances, there are little ways of doing things, different personalities among their team members that work in different departments. And it takes us doing our job in the brokerage world to figure out what those different little nuances are, what their certain or specific challenges are. And then we have to go to work part of thinking cap on and try to actually propose some sort of um, you know, options and solutions for them. So anything else you wanted to add as far as those stories go or good tips or pointers you want to toss in? Yeah, there's one other, there's another good one-liner that I saw that I think really brings all this together too, right? It was a quote by Richard Branson. A business is just an idea that makes people's lives better, right? And that's just another way to say, right? Like you're, you're solving a need and that's why it's called a needs analysis, right? So if you aren't making your customers' lives better, their business easier or whatever it is, adding value in any way, like you haven't really created an opportunity for you to provide value yet. That's where you've got to focus. And you can't find that unless you ask a lot of questions and you can't ask questions unless you've got rapport, right? So you start with rapport, ask questions, not so that you can talk more, but so that you can listen and hear where the opportunity is to make their lives better. That's good. So for those of you out there that are in those first couple of weeks or months in brokerage and someone told you to go listen to Freight 360, you just got to hear the whole, the whole, really, I mean, anything from a, a couple month to a 14 month long sales cycle. Um, not every customer is going to be like that, but the big ones that are out there, they'll take you a little bit longer. In your case, a lot longer. Good stuff. All right. We got some Q&A here today, but first, a shout out to our friends over at Lean Solutions Group. Lean is the industry leader in nearshore staffing solutions with offices in South America. And obviously, as Ryan told us, they, they've expanded outside of South America, but the jobs including freight broker back office operations, accounting, tech development, business development, marketing, customer service, and many other positions. To learn more about the vast solutions that Lean has to offer your brokerage or agency, visit them at www.leangroup.com or check out episode 174 from last week where we talk through in detail what Lean's got going on. So again, leangroup.com. All right, we've got five questions today. First one. How do I get my customer a certificate of insurance? So we'll just talk through this very, very briefly. Um, customer oftentimes will want to be listed as a certificate holder on your insurance certificate or your accord forms. Uh, the way I've always done it is you either have a, a program online where you can produce them or you just request it through your insurance agent. Have you ever done it any any other way? No, I've always done it exactly that way. So I usually just yeah. Yeah, sent the email or just requested it. 
And that's a good question to ask. So when you're like, we've talked to insurance a bunch and people are like, you know, what do I need and all that? When you're, when you're vetting out insurance brokers to work with, it's a good question to ask them. Like, Hey, when I have a need for something, how do we take care of that? And what can I expect for a timeline? Cause like, I mean, there, there are certain customers that you will not be able to move a single load for them until they have that certificate from you. And if it's going to take you 48 hours to get it back from your insurance rep, someone else is getting their business. So just something yep. to think about. Same thing with changes to your policy. If a if a customer changes their requirements, they want an additional policy or an additional limit, or they need some you know exclusion removed or whatever the case might be, you need to be able to get that stuff in a very, very timely manner. So good question. Um, <laughs> here's the next one. What's a good generic email to send out after somebody kicks you off the phone? Um, I want to ask a rhetorical question. Talk about this. Go ahead, Ben. Uh, the rhetorical question I would ask is, if you've ever kicked someone off the phone, would you want to read the email they send you after you kick them off the phone? Let alone a gen- one that's totally generic. Yes. Uh, so the answer is you don't, don't do that. Um, yeah. What I would probably do is try to call them a few days later. Um, or if, I mean, I have seen plenty of examples of people sending out comical, like break the ice type of emails after a very weird encounter. And it works. That's happened to me. I, too. Was, I was just going to say that I'm like the only real effective way I've seen that work is like either later that day or the next day, you can take that situation and turn it into something comical to try to make them smile. Like if I got an email and it was just like, I, I can't even think of anything, but it was just like, Hey, must've been having a rough day. And you can go into something funny or something that is relevant and funny to make them smile, that's about your only other way. Otherwise, again, your advice is the same as mine, which would be call on a different day of the week and a different time of the day. Yep. So yeah, don't send out those those uh, very canned style emails. They, yeah. you, you could tell them. You could, I could tell them by the, the usually the subject line or the first couple of sentences. The only time that I'm a fan of sending out generic emails is if it's like a newsletter. Like, for example, our newsletter is very generic because it's meant to go to the people that signed up to receive it every single week. So besides that, there's got to be some, you know, some kind of specifics in there that make it a relevant email. All right, next question. I'm a carrier and I just added a broker MC. My insurance company is dropping me. What options do I have? Uh, I'm trying to understand that. I'm a carrier just added my broker. MC. Oh, okay. So it sounds like what they're saying is their insurance company doesn't want to carry them because they have both. Well, first of all, you probably, you want to have two separate authorities. And we've talked about this before. If you have a brokerage and then you want to buy assets, have them totally, so you could own both of them, have them totally separate. That way the, Really, when an insurance underwriter looks at it, your exposure is going to be adequate for each one. So like if you do $100 million in brokerage and you've got one truck under the same authority, you're going to have to insure the trucking side of that company like it's a $100 million company. That's that's yeah. one of the ways that they'll look at it. So, and not only that, but you've got, you've got or your shop liabilities all insurance company. Yes. Yeah. 
But again, you, so, have, you also have your liabilities commingled between the brokerage and the assets, which you also want to try yes. to avoid because, again, they're different businesses. Exactly. It, like the way that the way that I always look at it is if you if you're in brokerage and you also have an asset company, there's a very very fine line when you try to call yourself a carrier. Right? You can't go. You're, you can't. You can do whatever you want, but you should not be going soliciting a customer to do brokerage business and telling them that you that your brokerage also has trucks. You could say our we have a trucking company that has trucks, but it's totally separate. Um, if you truly are asset based, go ahead and say that. But um, people oftentimes try to just sell on. They try to sell the assets because they think it's easier than selling brokerage services. So I would yep. keep them separate. Um, if you've got trucks, cool. You can sell that as a, a value add. Like, yeah, you know, obviously I've got these assets, but in addition to that, I've got a network of carriers, you know, outside of just the two trucks I have or whatever it is. So I'd split it up, do it that way. Um, next question. This is, I think this is from a carrier said, how do I deal with companies that take more than 20% of the load? I'm assuming it's a carrier that's getting pissed off that a broker is, or a dispatcher taking a high margin. I don't know. Um, I, I how do you know their margin? I guess is a question. But no one's forcing you to to take anyone's business, right? If you think you're being underpaid, then you don't have to choose to take that person's business. I mean, it's that simple, right? Yes. I, I don't. I don't know how else to answer that one. Um, yeah. I don't know. It could be a. Is it a? As I say, maybe a dispatcher, but no. Um, I mean, you could also have an, an honest conversation with somebody and just say like, hey, it's kind of like call the elephant out in the room. Like if you if somebody acts like if you're a carrier and a broker accidentally forwarded you an email that disclosed their customer's rate, call it out. Like, hey, you did send me this, by the way. I can see that you're you're you've got a lot more money in this than you told me and call it out. If you think someone's being dishonest with you, get ahead of it. Well, here's the other thing too, right? Again, all of these numbers are determined by the free market. There's no regulation. Something about making twenty margin, right? And the other thing is, like, if you're not happy, then tell them if you don't get an increase in your rate, you're not going to take their freight anymore. If yeah. you're adding enough value and your peer, you're really being paid below your peers, then no one else will take it anyway, and they'll increase your rate. But if your peers out there are willing to run it for what you're running it for, you might just lose the business altogether. Yep. That's exactly right. Good stuff. All right. Last one. As a dispatcher, how do I get carriers? Well, it's going to be in the same way that a broker would get carriers or a broker gets customers. You've got to go out there and you've got to prospect. You got to figure out who they are and then you've got to initiate conversation with them. So, we actually see we see this a lot in our Facebook group, which there is a link I think in the show notes. Yep, we got a. Uh, we'll make sure it's in there. Um, a lot, you get a lot of new dispatchers or new carriers in our group, for example, and this happens in other groups and on LinkedIn and stuff like that. They're like they just introduce themselves. Hey, I'm a carrier looking to connect with dispatchers and brokers. Or hey, I'm a yep. broker or dispatcher looking to connect with carriers that are out there. Um, it's, it's that simple. It's, it's networking and you could, you can go through the FMCSA has, uh, a database of every single licensed brokerage and carrier that's in the United States. So you can go that way and, um, look for carriers. I mean, you probably want to use some sort of tool. that's going to let you narrow down in a certain region, like the same way that we say 
prospect with a purpose, try to find some sort of niche or corner of the market you want to be an expert in, I would advise a dispatcher to do the same thing. If you're gonna if you're gonna try to be an expert in open deck, you know, pick that as your niche, right? You shouldn't like if you it's just weird if you're a dispatcher and you've got four carriers and they all have different equipment types. You're not adding any true value to a broker at that point by saying, Well, this guy's busy this week, but I've got this other guy. Oh, wait, no, he doesn't have the right equipment. You know what I mean? Like you should probably be building up your Rolodex or your 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 carrier base of a like or similar style. So that would be my advice on it. So, but good questions. What else we got going on? Ah, working on the asset course right now. I mean, that's the biggest thing we're working on. Oh, you know what I thought about the, uh, this was big news. The FTC, did we talk about the non-compete thing yet? So no. did you see this? Huh. The FTC has proposed the banning of non-competes as a matter of law. Now that does wow. not include solicitation or proprietary information or anything like that. It is strictly the non-competition portion of an employment agreement. They're they're pushing to to legitimately make it Ill- an illegal practice. So, I was curious. I know we were gonna we were gonna get uh, Cassandra Gaines on here at some point this year, and um, as a transportation attorney, I'm curious what her uh, what her take on it is. So, yeah, that, that was big news. Drastically, I mean, yeah. I think I've always believed that one of the main reasons why the larger companies have been able to get that big is solely through the enforcement of non competes. Um, yep. And I think that if they weren't, I think you see a lot of these huge companies get much smaller or at least not get any bigger. Yep. Yeah, that's a, that is a big part of it. Absolutely. Um, oh, yeah. My Bills predictions. Bills Chiefs at home. I'm going with the Bills. This is their minus five. I'm going Bills by three. They're not going to cover the spread. It's going to be like an end-of-the-game field goal or something like that. That's all I got. I'd take the Bills to cover. I think they'll cover. You think so? Yeah. We'll see, man. Well, I will say this on the Bengals. I feel like they're – and this was exposed by Baltimore. We should put pressure on Joe Burrow. I feel like their O-line's a little beat up. Get to the quarterback. It's going to be a big game-changer there. So, And Josh Allen, don't throw interceptions or fumbles. Kind of goes like yeah. with his style, I guess. And he's he's been winning with doing that, but it's scary to watch. So that's that's all I've got. Any final thoughts here, Ben? Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next time, go Bills. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Check out the show notes for links to anything that we've referenced on this episode. And make sure to visit us online at Freight360.net to see our entire library of episodes, videos, blogs, and more. And make sure to check us out on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel for daily and weekly tips and content. If you'd like your question answered on the show, fill out the Contact Us form on our site and we'll see you next week.